Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters, from the hand of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. This is the first eight verses of Psalm 144, which along with Psalm 137 are the psalms appointed for today, Saturday, February the 26th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing our look and finishing up, actually, in the book of Ruth, chapter 4, the first 17 verses there. Uh, The gospel is Matthew 6, 1 to 16, and the epistle reading today is from 2 Corinthians 4, verse 13 through... Chapter 5, verse 10. So following the story of uh, Ruth and Boaz, remember what had happened is, is that she had gone and um, to, the, to him on the threshing floor, uncovered his feet, lay at his feet, and then said, I want you to be the Redeemer. <clears throat> and so he said, well, I, I will, but somebody else has right of first refusal on this. And so Boaz goes to the gate of the city in Bethlehem and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they have a minyan. They have a quorum. Um, You would need ten men. Uh, Jewish men to form a, a synagogue in a, in a city, and so a ten, a group of ten is called a minyan. So he has them sit down, and they sit down, and he says to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, and in the presence of the elders of my people. So he's giving him the information that this piece of property is for sale, and that that because he is the closest kinsman redeemer, he has the right to redeem it first. And he's doing it in a public way. If you'll redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I'll redeem it. Boaz said, okay, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Oh, Wait, <laughs> there's something he didn't know here. And it's in what his answer is, I can't redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. In other words, it would dilute his the inheritance that he would pass on to his own children if he now added a child by Ruth. So he said, I can't do it. You're going to have to do it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. So in other words, he's passing on this, and then therefore that Boaz can make the redemption himself. 
Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, Your witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Miklon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have brought bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So this child, even though it would be Boaz's, would be counted to Malan, and it would, it would inherit the portion that belonged to Malan. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah, in Bethlehem, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And so it's in the line, they, they, all this whole thing about Perez and Tamar uh, bore to Judah. It's, it's all about that line, that tribe. And it's the tribe that El, um, Elimelech was in. It's the tribe also that Boaz is in and the one into whom Ruth will be marrying. And so they're praying basically great blessing on the house because these are the two most important people in the line. Rachel and Leah are. Um, and then certainly Tamar is to Judah. There's a scandalous backstory on the Tamar and Judah story because Tamar, remember, had been married to Judah's son who died. And then from there, then the his other children wouldn't uh, redeem that uh, Tamar. Instead, what ended up happening was she had to trick Judah and, and make him believe she was a prostitute in order to get him to do the job that the law required. With Boaz, it's exactly the opposite. Boaz is willing to be the kinsman redeemer without having to be tricked or coerced into that work. What, one of the things you can say, the, the book of Ruth is frequently interpreted, at least in Judaism, as one that's about hesed, the loving kindness of God. And, and there's certainly a lot of hesed in that, in the entire story, you know, it's from Ruth to her mother-in-law, from her mother-in-law to Ruth, and then certainly from Boaz to Ruth, and vice versa. But what it is is, it shows that if a, if people would submit themselves and live truly under the law, with the understanding that the law sets up the bare minimum that has to be done, and that's exactly what Jesus was getting at in the. Uh, Sermon on the Mount in the passages where he said, you've heard it said, and he's quoted, and then he quote a commandment, but I tell you, and then he raises the bar. And so righteousness, the minimum standard for righteousness is meeting the commandments of the law. The, the real standard is a changed heart that, that goes beyond the law itself, and that's what Boaz does in every situation. He, he provides for Ruth in a way that there's no um, commandment that he has to provide at that level. He, all the things that he commands his his young men to do, which is to allow her to um, glean among the sheaves and all that, all the things that he's doing here exceed his obligation under the law. And when people meet the obligation of the law and then voluntarily go beyond it, what we see is this wonderful, blessed existence. And so the law, if you want an ode to the law, 
you, you won't find it any better or more clearly stated than in the book of Ruth because because everything here, it, it involves the laws of gleaning. It involves the laws of redemption and all that and shows in a, in a unique way how all these things come together to provide a blessed life when people live by the law and love the Lord. <clears throat> so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. The Lord blessed him immediately. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And this child will continue on the line of Elimelech and, and Naomi. Um, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, who was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And so we, we get this wonderful backstory on how we get through this Moabite woman, through um, the, the disobedience of the, of the Jew, Jewish man, Elimelech, who took his family and left Bethlehem, left his people in a time of famine, and then joined themselves to, to these Moabite foreigners, but ultimately how God redeemed every single bit of that. So who is the real redeemer in this story? Well, it's the Lord. And it's because he, through the law, he provided this um, possibility of a redeemer. And so widows and uh, orphans, have a, have a hope and a promise that the Lord never forgets them, never forgets those who have died, and provides a way for their line to be carried on. And those who, who follow the law and are obedient to the law are a blessed um, benefactor through him. In the uh, gospel today, Jesus is continuing in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you'll have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. So you're doing it for the sake of vanity. You're taking the Lord's name in vain, is what he's getting at here, is that you do it for the sake of vanity. You want the applause of doing these things more than you want to do those things. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've already received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And then about prayer, he does the same thing. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've already received their reward. They're doing it for the wrong reason. It's, it's the same thing the prophet said over and over. Look, you keep the fast, yeah, and you bring sacrifices, yeah, but why do you do it? You do it in order that you think, oh, okay, if I do this thing, then God's obliged to do this thing. But I'm not looking at the externals, God says. I'm looking at the heart. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. It's the same thing that all the prophets said. Yeah, your religious observances, yep, you do those things, but that's all they are. They're religious observances. There's nothing from the heart. You're doing it because it's a form of bribe. So he says, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And then when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray like this then. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. 
and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And yesterday I made mention of this. The word there is panera. So it's lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one is actually a better way of reading that, that passage. If you forgive others your trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. There will be something between you and the Father. If you fail to forgive those who have sinned against you, and and I can't say this enough, stop carrying stuff around. Stop carrying around this anger or or unforgiveness towards other people. It's a drag on you, and it distances you from God. You're not receiving forgiveness. You're not receiving the fullness of grace and mercy to the extent that you're not giving grace and mercy. There's something not right in your relationship with the Lord. There's, a, there's an unnecessary distance that's caused by your unforgiveness. And it's important for all of us to be quick to forgive. We want to be like him. And to the extent that, that we don't, then we're showing other people what we believe about God. And then we're showing them a false picture of God. If we take the name of Jesus and then refuse to forgive other people, then we are showing other people a false image of God, as opposed to Jesus, who on the cross prayed for those who tormented him, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we have to take that attitude and have that mind of Christ in us with respect to sins that others have committed against us. In fact, even those who might at this moment be sinning against us. He says, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And again, that's a pretty common complaint that the um, prophets make against the people of God, and that is the way that they fast betrays what's actually in their hearts, and and that it's not good. It's not the right thing. It's not glorifying to God to look gloomy, and so everybody can see, oh, I'm making this great sacrifice for God. And it's a good warning right before Lent to hear that. In the epistle today, Paul is continuing to speak about his apostleship in light of those who have come and tried to capture the hearts of the people in Corinth. He says, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. It's the, it's the outpouring of the abundance of the heart is what I'm speaking, he says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it's all for your sake, so that his grace extends to more and more people it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. In other words, he says, the best thing in the world that you can do for yourself is to evangelize others and see others come into the kingdom and then teach those people when they come in because then more and more people increase the thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer selves, our bodies, are wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so he's, he's flipping that idea on its head because we tend to think that the things that we can see are real and tangible. And the things that we can't see are therefore not real in some ways. And, and sometimes we can get that way when we speak about faith, that we forget that, that our faith is built on a series of truths and realities, 
the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. These things are observable realities. And then what we live for are those unseen things, the world that is to come. And and so we set our sights on those just as Jesus did. He could have had worldly power and authority. He could have had all those things, but chose to lay all that aside for love of us because he knew that he wanted us in that eternal kingdom. And so we need to, to make sure that we have set ourselves on those things that are eternal as well and that we're not living in, in all of our lives for the things that are, that are temporal. He says, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And again, he's, he's com- comparing the, the temporal nature of this body, which seems real to us, and it is real, but, but it's, it's a tent compared to the building, the permanent structure of ourselves that, that is going to be in the heavens, and it will be eternal. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. And, and, and that is to say that we're in Christ Jesus. And so we are not exposed. There is this heavenly dwelling waiting for us because of Jesus. Otherwise, we are naked before the Lord, just in our sin. For while we're still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. And you can hear some echoes in that of of the story in Eden, right? Because they, they find themselves naked and ashamed. In other words, they find themselves in sin. And so because they're in sin, then, then now that's, that's what's exposed to the world. And, and so they, they look on themselves with shame, and then they put on the fig leaves, which are God determines not to be proper clothing because, well, that's not going to last all that long to start with. And so he makes them skins. And so the, the, there's this, this fear of being unclothed. And what we're trying to say is, is that Paul's trying to say is, is that, no, 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 we don't want to be unclothed. We don't want to take off this tent and be unclothed. No, we want to take on this tent and put on the building, the permanent thing, the eternal thing that's been prepared for us. <clears throat> so we're always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yet, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Because we know that's where everything is heading, ultimately, that that this is passing away. And so that's what he's saying here. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, does that mean that we have a works-based salvation? And the answer is no. But as Paul and James and everybody and even John will argue that, that it's not just words. John will say things like, you know, you can't just love your brother by saying, I love you. No, if your brother needs something, then you should provide for him. And that proves the love you have in your heart is real. And so that, that's exactly what Paul's saying here is, is that, that what I'm calling you to is a display of faith, not just faith, and, and, and a display of where your priorities are by putting your money where your mouth is. And so that's what he's calling us to, and that's what, that's what everything points to. And we can make Judaism into a, into a thing about works, but they're very clear that it's not just about works, that it, that it is truly the faith of Abraham. 
It's that, that standing in there and believing in God and believing God, both those things at the same time, that, that gain them salvation. It's faithfulness to what I believe. It's, it's submitting myself to the law and to the giver of the law in the same way that Boaz did, being willing to at least meet, always meet the minimum obligation, but understanding that, th- that, that I have the freedom because of God's blessing and his mercy and his love in my life to go beyond that, that minimum obligation, that, that it's the beginning of an understanding that this is not anything more than a rule for how to live life and how to think about my life and the world around me. And it, it, it gives us the structure on which that building can then be built.